From the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, this is Politically Georgia. I'm Patricia Murphy. The U.S. Supreme Court is taking up the case today to decide whether the state of Colorado has the right to remove Donald Trump from its presidential ballot. It would be so bad for this country, you have no idea, and you you understand it would be be a big problem for the country. First, we'll talk to a Georgia lawmaker who has filed his own bill to remove Trump from ballots here. I'm Greg Bluestein. Then we'll talk more deeply into the legal issues that brought the Colorado election case to the Supreme Court today. Plus, I'm Bill Nygut. The border security bill fails in the Senate along with aid to Ukraine and Israel. We'll look at the political fallout and what's next. We invite you to follow us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts so you never miss an episode of Politically Georgia. Ocean breeze. Tropical beach. Pina Colada. You can buy an air freshener to make your car smell like you're in an oceanside paradise. Or, better yet, you can point your car toward Daytona Beach and come experience the real thing. Visit DaytonaBeach.com to discover all there is to see, do, and enjoy along the world's most famous beach. Daytona Beach, Florida. Beach on. There is an effort to keep former President Donald Trump off the ballot, not just in Colorado, but right here in Georgia. State Representative Derek Jackson, a Democrat from Tyrone, has introduced the Oath Act, which would also disqualify the former president as a candidate here based on um, a number of factors. But we have right now with us Representative Jackson with us to discuss his measure. Representative, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you, uh, Patricia. It's great to uh, join you, Greg, and Bill. Thank you. Well, it's terrific, and we look forward to this conversation because I think this is news that many Georgians may not know about, but we're happy to tell them about it right now. Tell us about the Oath Act and how it would work, and and also especially why you introduced it. So the Oath Act, uh, which is House Bill 1159-1159, is really about honoring the oath. Um, for your listening audience, I'm a retired naval officer. I did 22 years in the Navy. And so the oath uh, means something to me. And part of the oath, uh, how I interpret it, is really a solemn promise. It's a solemn promise to uh, those who elect us and even those who uh, did not elect us. But it's a solemn uh, promise. It's a, a formal declaration, if you will, uh, to fulfill a pledge to, to support and defend the Constitution of the United States against all enemies, foreign and domestic. We know what a foreign enemy looks like, but what does a, a domestic enemy look like? And a domestic enemy is simply spelled out in Section 3 of the 14th Amendment on someone who tried to overtake uh, our government uh, as a, through insurrection or rebellion and and it should not be tolerated, but that's what a domestic enemy looks like, one to try to overthrow the government. Representative Jackson, um, a couple of things, of course, are in play right now. As you well know, the U.S. Supreme Court taking up today the uh, Colorado issue. Colorado uh, took him off the ballot there, and now the Supreme Court will decide whether or not the section in the 14th Amendment that you referred to is, in fact, applicable to a, a, a president of the United States. But what I'm what I really am interested in beyond that, I assume if the Supreme Court says yes, uh, uh, no, Colorado should not have removed him from the ballot, what happens to your oath act? Do you withdraw it? Do you feel that you've established other grounds on which a court may rule on Trump's eligibility? So, Bill, I, I, that's a great question, and I believe I will continue to move forward with the 1159, House Bill 1159. Here's the reason why. If you think about why the early framers uh, um, basically added Section 3 of the 14th Amendment, it was after the Civil War. They wanted to make sure that the Confederates uh, never to um, be elected or be in office. And so it's very clear to me that um, I, my prayer is that the Supreme Court will use this 
the 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 basis of why we have Section Three of the Fourteenth Amendment, and that was to make sure that the Constitution uh, is protected and preserved. Uh, and it also spells out, if if I may evoke my uh, inner uh, Alexander Hamilton spirit, uh, is to make sure that no one's above the law. Uh, we have Hamilton here, uh, right, playing uh, as a Broadway play. And, and if Alexander Hamilton was alive, he would say that the rule of law, part of this republic, is to make sure the Constitution and its laws are protected and preserved. I think we're going this weekend to the Hamilton play. I always cry at the end. Uh, Representative Jackson, um, I think it's fair to say this is highly unlikely to pass a Republican-controlled legislature. But do you think a, a measure like this sends a message to voters that, that Democrats aren't going to kind of uh, stand aside and let Trump get on the ballot without at least some sort of political fight? I think, Greg, it, it's twofold, actually. It's, it demonstrates that the Democrats uh, believe in the role of law, and it really forces the Republicans in the state of Georgia. It puts them on court, too. Uh, listen, I, you know, my wife and I, we have seven beautiful children and one of the things that we taught our children at a very early age is the difference between right and wrong. And I think um, now is the true debate and discussion uh, when you look at someone that has 91 felonies, uh, four indictments, two impeachments, um, will you hire that person? And the answer nine times out of 10, no one will hire them to work in their corporations. So why would we want to hire them given the fact that uh, January 6th, their involvement of January 6th still exists. So, uh, oh, I was going to follow up on that. D- did you get any pushback from Democrats who said they didn't think this is the right avenue th- to beat Donald Trump at the ballot box rather than in the court system? Yeah, so uh, so I, I didn't get pushback, but uh, I, I did get uh, some caution, I would say, um, is this the, the, the fight that we want to fight during this election cycle? And, um, and, and obviously I did get some Democrats to sign on to this bill uh, as well because they believe that um, we need to protect our oath. We need to preserve the oath. And that's part of what we all do in the House and in the Senate every other year. And that is give an oath. And so uh, this is part of that conversation. And Representative, I know this is not something that you just cooked up out of nowhere. You had constituents coming to you and asking you questions about this. You're exactly right, Patricia. And that's one of the things. In fact, it was a a group of women uh, that uh, really called me out um, during a town hall forum uh, last month um, and, and said, what are we going to do about it? You are our state representative. And we hear other states are looking at or entertaining uh, the thought of keeping him off the ballot. Uh, what are you going to do? And I, we had a, a lengthy conversation for about a good 40 minutes around um, the rule of law and the, and the oath. And one of the mothers said, if we don't do this today, then what happens to the future? And that's, and that's why I... I, I I prayed on it, and I was thoroughly convicted to move forward, and I drafted this bill. Um, Representative Jackson, I want to make sure I understand and go a little deeper into uh, what Greg referred to already, and that is there are any number of uh, anti-Trump people out there who believe that this is absolutely the wrong way to move forward, that in fact... It is up to the voters to decide whether Donald Trump um, should be elected president again. Uh, and, 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 and I think it's interesting that even within your own party, you're finding that there are people who don't want to sign on to the bill because of that. What about the right of voters to decide whether, in fact, Donald Trump was an insurrectionist and therefore should not be reelected? So, Bill, there's a case right now that's happening in Oregon. I, I don't know uh, if a lot of folks are paying attention, but 12 Republican senators um, 
are are going to be off the ballot in Oregon because they ran a foul against a constitutional piece of legislation in Oregon. Uh, and it was simply that they thought they were doing the right thing two years ago uh, when this uh, law was enacted. And now here we are two years later, those 12 senators in Oregon are going to find themselves off the ballot. And the reason being, and going back to my previous point, um, the early framers thought uh, when they ratified the Section 3, it wasn't that they were trying to take the power uh, and vote from the voters. They were simply saying, um, what should our republic look like? If this is going to be a republic, um, how do we make sure that those who in, who those individuals who are involved to overthrow their own government, what should we expect from the public? And if we don't do something, and again, I wasn't around in the 1800s, but I'm thinking <laughs> in the spirit um, that they said we have to put something and codify it into law. And that's where Section 3 of the 14th Amendment was was birthed because of what took place uh, at, um, during the Civil War. We're here with State Representative Derek Jackson, who brought legislation, a Democrat who brought legislation to keep Donald Trump's name off the 2024 ballot here in Georgia. Representative, I think it's also fair to say there's been a lot of conversation in Democratic circles right now about November and about the intensity in which President Biden's campaign will focus on Georgia. We've, we've always known Georgia will be a battleground state, but there's a lot of speculation about whether it will be a tier one battle state, battleground state, or, you know, not an afterthought, but not as intensely focused on as, let's say, Pennsylvania or Michigan. Do you worry that, that Biden's campaign won't be focusing on Georgia quite like it did in 2020? I think they are focused, Greg. And here's the reason why. Uh, thus far, uh, Vice President Kamala Harris has visited Georgia about a dozen times thus far uh, in various parts of Georgia. And, and and they realized that uh, not only Georgia assisted them to do uh, what they needed to do. Uh, we delivered not one, but two United States senators. And so there's something to be said how Georgia is the reason why we have a Katanji Brown Jackson. While Georgia uh, delivered in 2020 and helped um, President Biden and Vice President Kamala Harris um, to to be able to do infrastructure legislation, um, all transportation, all these big bills is because Georgia played a an, an invaluable role these last three years. And so I, you know, battleground state or not, um, you can clearly see the investment being made, the number of trips that the administration has been here, and Georgia is is certainly going to be in play in 2024. Representative, when Kamala Harris was in town, she was talking about abortion rights in Savannah. Uh, obviously, we have heard a good bit uh, about abortion. We have heard about uh, the question of democracy from Democrats like you. What do you think this race in 2024 is going to be about for Democratic voters? It's going to be about values, Patricia. It's going to be about values. Do we believe in humanity or not? Do we believe that children should be fed during the summertime or not? Should we believe that women who try to bring life into this world or not? Uh, Georgia ranks at the very bottom, as you all know, um, when it comes to not just health care, but women's health. Uh, 82 counties out of 159 counties do not have an OBGYN. 61 counties out of 159 do not have a pediatrician. Uh, so that's just appalling. And so we continue to push uh, and urge Governor Kemp for full Medicaid expansion, not trying to do some damage control uh, patchwork uh, on, on a pathway where he said that there's going to be 100,000 Georgians, but yet we only see only 2,700 to my last count. Mm -hmm. Uh, have signed up. And so uh, the remedy is there. The question is, are we going to do the right thing uh, in Georgia to make sure that we mitigate um, uh, these ills in Georgia? And we want to continue to fight for principles 
and values. That is the clear message here but in Georgia. It's interesting that you mentioned it in your answer to Patricia women's health, because it certainly appeared quite clear that the one-two Democratic punch of Kamala Harris on Tuesday and then the First Lady, Jill Biden, yesterday, both came in to talk about the importance of women's health, Kamala Harris about reproductive rights, and then Jill Biden yesterday at Morehouse School of Medicine talking about showcasing Morehouse's research into significant women's health issues, um, heart disease and the like, and saying how important it is to expand the research about women's health conditions. So clearly, uh, the Democrats, the Biden campaign, sees those as opportunities to appeal to women voters, and especially, I assume, uh, black women voters. Do you agree with that? Absolutely, Bill. Listen, you know, Democrats, we can walk and chew bubblegum at the same time. And so what we learn uh, is not only to uh, make these issues um, part of the conversation, but to continue to introduce legislation. Um, half of our caucus are women. And so we realize uh, the best argument that we have is to make sure that the women uh, in the state of Georgia are not only heard, but we do something about it. Uh, it's just a travesty that 169 women, listen to this, Bill, 169 women in Georgia lost their life. 776 infants died at birth. One of my constituents, she's in her mid-50s, but she came up to me and said, and this was just two weeks ago, um, after she heard... Uh, my, my points about the press conference, she said, Representative Jackson, my bio biological mother died three weeks after I was born. Mm -hmm. And so when I made mention in that press conference about 169 women losing their life trying to give birth, the 776 children died during birth, it resonated with her. And she said, I am one of them. And so we have to do something, Bill, to change this tidal wave of where women are not being heard. And it should be the choice to be left up to them. There was nothing that was broken about Roe v. Wade. Nothing that was broken. And now here we are. Representative Jackson, as Democrats gear up and get ready for not, not just the primaries coming up, but of course the November election and voters start to tune in. Um, and when we're talking about these important issues, what, what advice, I'm putting you in a spot here, but what advice do you have for the Biden campaign about focusing on their messaging to Georgia voters? Because, of course, there's been a lot of concerns, you know, not just from pundits and analysts, but also from Democrats like you. I don't know if you in particular, but about enthusiasm uh, in the base of the Democratic electorate for Biden. You know, Greg, I, I have learned, uh, I've been up here now in my fourth term. The best way to communicate a message is town hall meetings. Um, you, you are not only there, um, a lot of things cannot be captured in a 30 second, 45 second commercial. Uh, continue to do that, right? If that's you know a, a vehicle to get your message out, but the best way is to deploy, I would recommend three things. One, continue to deploy, um, 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 the women in his administration, right, starting with the first lady, starting with the vice president, and talk about women issues. Who's best to talk about women issues than women? That's number one. Continue to, to deploy those surrogates. Number two, continue to invest. Um, you, you cannot uh, talk about grassroots, and if you don't engage with these uh, nonprofit organizations who are at the grassroots level to help penetrate uh, the noise that a lot of folks are not getting. Unfortunately, uh, you know, my, all my teenagers, they get their news, uh, unfortunately, because they don't read AJC. Oh, don't tell me don't. that. I know, I know. <laughs> I, I send them clips. They're like, oh, I didn't know that, right? We'll find ways to get to them. Podcasts and everything. And they're like, Dad, where are you getting this information? I said, the AJC. They're like, what's 
And so they get their information from social media. And I think we have to have a strong campaign on Twitter, or well, uh, X, formerly known as Twitter, um, Trend, um, Snapchat, uh, Instagram, all these areas. So that's the reason why, you know, your podcast, podcast being on social media helps facil- facilitate fathers like me to be able to push <laughs> it on our Instagrams um, to our our very smart children. And so I think that's the third leg is to have a, a strong social media. So that way we can meet every voter where they are. Those would be the three things I would advise. All right. Well, Representative Derek Jackson, I think this is our, our cue to start a TikTok channel. Um, and we also want to thank you. <laughs> we want to thank you so much for coming on the show. We will continue to follow your bill, the Oath Act, and please come back as the legislative session continues. And bring your teenagers. absolutely thank you so much patricia greg and bill really appreciate it this is politically georgia from the atlanta journal constitution ocean breeze tropical beach an air freshener can make your car smell like paradise a drive to daytona beach will actually get you there beach on plan your trip today at daytonabeach.com Welcome back to Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Twice daily, delivered straight to your email, you can receive the AJC's Politically Georgia newsletter. Stay on top of all the important news, scoops, and exclusives from me and the rest of the AJC politics team. Just go to AJC.com newsletters and sign up today. That's AJC.com newsletters. And we mentioned this at the top of the show, but the Supreme Court is currently hearing oral arguments today about whether former President Donald Trump should be barred from the Colorado presidential ballot. Here to break down the legal arguments and the case, and we need him desperately right now, Emory University Professor of Law Fred Smith, who is also a former Supreme Court clerk himself. Professor Smith, thank you so much for joining us today. Sure. It's a pleasure to be here. All right. Well, it's great to hear you. Let's just go ahead and get started. Set the table for us about the 14th Amendment, what it looks like, and why that's central to this case that the court has in front of it. The 14th Amendment is a remarkably important amendment generally. It was passed in the aftermath of the Civil War. Uh, And it does a lot of things. Uh, It uh, creates uh, birthplace citizenship. It guarantees equal protection. It guarantees uh, due process. Um, What's at issue here is a less known provision, Section 3 of the 14th Amendment. Uh, And among other things, Section 3 of the 14th Amendment uh, states that uh, officers of the United States who have participated in an insurrection uh, or rebellion um, are ineligible to hold office um, unless Congress uh, has uh, removed that disqualification. Um, And so here what we have is that uh, the state of Colorado uh, has concluded uh, that the former president did participate in an insurrection uh, and they've concluded that that he's ineligible for the ballot. And so what the court's wrestling with today uh, is whether the state of Colorado had that authority. One quick question um, on the question of insurrection. Would that be a, a legal understanding? Would he need to have been convicted of insurrection or is it just somebody's opinion that he participated or even called the insurrection on January 6th? Sure. That's a big part of what's being uh, argued right now and discussed. Right. So one possibility um, is that each state on its own can engage in fact finding uh, and make its own legal determination about whether or not uh, an insurrection has uh, has taken place um, in the same way that if the question was, uh, is the is this person running for office? Are they 35? Right. Um, or is this person running for Senate? Are they 30? Um, is this in that same sort of category where we generally um, uh, defer to um, the decisions made by states um, when it comes to the people who decide whether someone's eligible for office? Or is this different? Uh, should there be some kind of national definition um, that's established by some other entity? Um, but even if we get that far, then the question becomes, who's that other entity? Uh, is it Congress? Uh, is it someone else? If it is Congress, what's the legal argument for why it's Congress? Um, you know, there's no other, every other dimension of the 14th Amendment, equal protection and the like, we don't wait until Congress tells us uh, that the Equal Protection Clause 
is relevant, right? Um, we and we we allow state courts uh, to to regularly enforce it, uh, and so that's why this is such a tricky uh, tricky argument. Fred, um, Justice Thomas got the first question of the attorneys this morning, and he went right to what you're referring to: is this is Section Three of the Fourteenth Amendment self-executing? Rather, there is some language, I think, in Section 3 that perhaps gives Trump's side uh, some room to argue that Congress has to enact Section 3. It isn't self-executing. On the other hand, Justice Sotomayor, not surprisingly, is arguing on the other side of that. She's already made very strong statements about the fact that uh, Section 3 has been used in individual cases to dismiss people from uh, ballots, certainly without any kind of congressional approval. So self-execution is going to be one important part of this argument, but then so is the issue of, as you already talked and Patricia asked about, the what defines an insurrectionist? And they haven't gotten to that yet, as far as I can see. Uh, no, not just yet. Uh, and, uh, and that's right. I mean, there is some possibility that one could argue that Congress, that this belongs to Congress. The difficulty is that at least in the briefing and at oral argument so far, um, and at least that I've heard, I've been on the radio the last few minutes, um, there, uh, there there really hasn't uh, been um, a, a strong textual basis for the argument that Congress uh, has to do this. Um, instead, there's reliance on statements that uh, that they've acknowledged are not precedential. Um, that is, they've acknowledged that these are not, you know, this isn't something that the court is bound to follow. Um, statements from uh, Justice Chase uh, in a case called Griffin's case from, from 1869. Uh, and so uh, in that case, uh, there's someone who uh, alleged that a judge who convicted them was ineligible to convict them because the judge had participated in an insurrection. Uh, and there's language in that opinion that suggests that it would uh, create due process problems um, for someone to be considered to be an insurrectionist um, without something more uh, in the way of, for example, a, 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 you know, a judicial hearing or conviction uh, of some sort. Um, and you know it's it's unclear how much weight that's going to carry. I mean, a few moments ago, um, the, the former president's attorney uh, conceded that in the absence of this non-presidential case from 1869, um, that one of the fundamental underpinnings of the argument they're making this morning um, disappears. We're here with Emory Law Professor Fred Smith, um, who you know, Fred, we we like to take our listeners behind this a peek behind the curtains a lot here in Politically Georgia about what it's like to be a journalist. Well, you were a clerk for Supreme Court Justice Sonia Sotomayor. What's it like behind the scenes when you have a big argument like this one? Uh, to the extent you can talk about it, I'm sure you can. But what's, what's it like, you know, just being in that building when there's such a hubbub, when you know the national and the, really the global attention is, is on whatever's happening? Yeah. I mean, so on the one hand, right, uh, there's no question that all eyes are on the Supreme Court this morning, and there are hundreds of people who lined up in order to try to uh, to get uh, to get a seat. Um, on the other hand, there is this sort of sense when you're in that building that kind of the noise around you just like disappears. You don't physically, you don't actually audibly hear the noise. Um, you 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 really actually feel the weight of the institution and. Uh, the weight of all that's come before you, and the and the weight uh, of the fact that whatever is decided uh, will will be, will be lasting well beyond this moment, and so it really, um, I, I'm sure that that is pressing on them, uh, and so they are weighing, I think, probably a couple of things. One is the quality of the legal arguments, um, and on that score, frankly, um, president, the former president's lawyer has a really tough case. But the other uh, is the policy implications for our democracy of a state being able to disqualify someone from the ballot. And that's something that um, that Justice Alito has raised. Um, and that's deeply concerning. And so I think that for some of the justices, right, they're trying to find perhaps what's the best legal argument can, that can do the least harm uh, in terms of the law, uh, while also trying to reach the conclusion that isn't going to damage uh, the democracy, uh, you know, for decades or perhaps centuries to come. Um, and, uh, you know, that's, 
That's why I'm, I would say that's why they get paid the big bucks, but they don't. But they don't. <laughs> they definitely don't. That's why they have life tenure. That's yeah. why they get paid the little bucks. Um, well, Fred, another really unique situation among many with this is that three of the sitting justices were appointed by the former president, who is um, in front of them today, not physically in the building, um, but they have their own individual relationships with the former president. Uh, but we also know that Chief Justice John Roberts is very keen to really protect the reputation of the court and make sure that what they are doing is is uh, seen as um, apolitical and based on arguments and facts and uh, precedent. What do you think the political machinations are here? D- do you think that Roberts might feel that pressure? Um, this will be picked apart immediately by um, whoever is not on the winning side of this. Uh, well, sure. I mean, to the extent that he takes into consideration um, how people view the institution and whether it will be viewed as political based on what the court does, then this would be one of the most important cases um, that he's ever been involved in. Um, that that cuts in a different in a lot of different directions, though, um, because one might think that no matter what the court decides here, um, that it's important for the institution that it, it be a bipartisan ruling in either direction. Um, that that's almost in some ways um, more important than the than the conclusion that they reach. Um, that there be people from different political parties, and that. Ideally, that it be as many people as possible who are on board with whatever decision uh, that they reach. And the questions that he's asked this morning, um, you know, he's, he's, I think that's why he's kind of really probing and, and asking very difficult questions of uh, of the former uh, president's attorney. And I'm sure he'll do the same um, when uh, when the when the people who are defending Colorado's position uh, begin. Fred, you're suggesting that a 6-3 decision on this would be really uh, problematic uh, for the court because it would split them along the the people appointed by Trump and those who were not, I I think it's fair to say. But let let me ask you a broader question. Um, uh, Anthony Michael Christ, who you've been on the show with on any number of occasions, Georgia State University law professor, was on Politically Georgia yesterday. And he made the point, and I'd love to hear what you think about this. We, we know another case that could be headed for the Supreme Court was the appeals court decision in Washington, um, which uh, uh, went against Donald Trump's claim of immunity from prosecution as having because he was a sitting president when some of the actions that he's been indicted for took place. Um, and the, it, there's no question, I assume, that the Trump lawyers will appeal it to the Supreme Court. Anthony suggested something interesting. He said, how many Trump cases does the United States Supreme Court really want to take up? He thinks that's one of the factors they might take into consideration, because there's a third one down the line that could come before them, too. What do you think about uh, that and what do you think about the Supreme Court taking up the immunity argument? So people seem quite split about this, um, but I would be personally surprised if the Supreme Court did not take the immunity question. Uh, it's of such import that to leave that in the hands of any uh, circuit court, including the second uh, most important circuit court, the D.C. Circuit, very well respected, uh, circuit court. I still think that it's of such magnitude that the Supreme Court would want to have its its say, even if it's in the form of um, some kind of emergency order that, that temporarily halts uh, what the D.C. Circuit has done, or that explains why it's not halting what the D.C. Circuit has done. Um, but I think that there's going to be an impetus to actually say something. Um, if I'm putting on just, you know, if this were just about politics, if you just take the law out of it for a minute. Uh, the best thing for uh, the institution politically, I think, would be a 9-0 ruling that Trump can be prosecuted and a 9-0 ruling uh, that states can't remove them from the ballot. The problem is there's law. <laughs> so, <laughs> it's always a problem. <laughs> so so, they, so the, they have to work through these, these legal arguments are extremely complex and actually... Um, you know, Will Bode, who's a professor at the University of Chicago, uh, he's written the most comprehensive article about Section 3 uh, in the Pennsylvania Law Review. And he argues that Trump 
uh, is disqualified from the ballot and that states have an obligation to remove him. Uh, Will Bode is a conservative uh, pro professor who clerked for the former chief justice, uh, or sorry, who clerked for the current, clerked for the current chief justice, um, clerked for Chief Justice Roberts. Um, and, you know, his, he's a very uh, smart and careful lawyer. Um, and I think part of what people are having to do, uh, who almost want him to be wrong, uh, is to really kind of push and figure out what's, you know, is it possible for him to be wrong? And where what's the argument, what's the way that he can be wrong that will cause the least damage? Um, I, th I think, frankly, that's part of what's happening right now. Uh, pre pre Professor Smith, <laughs> sorry about that. Um, you know, I, I, I want to bring this home to Georgia. I don't know how closely you've been watching the efforts here in Georgia uh, to disqualify Lieutenant Governor Burt Jones, also invoking the 14th Amendment. Um, have you been following that? And if, if so, have you, uh, do you see those of having any legal merit? It's already been thrown out by the local Butts County Superior Court, but I know that they're planning to appeal to the Georgia Supreme Court. Yeah, so part of what has been argued this morning is, uh, is there some way that the Supreme Court can rule that would only apply to federal offices or that perhaps would only apply to the president and that wouldn't apply to state offices. Um, the court seems, some, at least some justices seem reticent to issue an opinion that would tell uh, state Supreme Courts what they have to do with respect to their own state officers if they if they conclude that, that their state officer has, has participated in an insurrection. Um, and so that's that's one of the things that I think they're trying to figure out how to thread the needle on, if it's at all possible legally. All right, Professor, before we let you go, sketch out for us what we can expect to see next after these oral arguments conclude. All right, well, in terms of what, uh, first I'll tell you actually what we won't see. So Great. they're gonna go uh, this afternoon and they're gonna discuss this. They're gonna start, the Chief Justice is gonna give his perspective first to the other eight justices. Then will come the most senior justice, uh, who at this point is Justice Thomas, and they'll each state what their position is, um, and they'll issue kind of a preliminary vote. Uh, and then based on that, uh, there will be either one or two opinions that get assigned, uh, either a majority opinion and a dissent, or if it's unanimous, just one opinion will be assigned. Uh, and I think there'll be, a, there'll be a lot of pressure on the institution to get something out relatively quickly. Um, given the stakes, given that other states are having um, to decide this. Now, that pressure to get things out quickly is balanced against the fact that if there's multiple opinions, they have to respond to each other. Uh, and and that just can take time. So it may so it may be a few months and it could be it could actually be as late as late June before we hear. But I think that they'll want to get something out faster than that. Uh, and their their aim will be to get something out faster than that. Okay, well, Emory University law professor Fred Smith, thank you so much for joining us. And we hope we can have you back as this case continues to unfold because it sounds like it's not wrapping up tomorrow. <laughs> Happy to. All right. This is Politically Georgia from the AJC. In Atlanta, one voice has stood out for over four decades. An AJC original, The Monica Pearson Show. Let's talk about how you got to ESPN. Revealing interviews. You are known as America's doctor, but I want to know who you were before that. When you have a different name, you have different color skin, it can be tough. With Atlanta's most famous faces as you've never seen them before. I'm telling my story. This is the American dream. The Monica Pearson Show, streaming now on AJC.com. Welcome back to Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. This podcast is part of the mission of the AJC to be the most essential and engaging source of news for the people of Atlanta, Georgia, and the South. Stay up to date on breaking news, in-depth investigations, politics, sports, entertainment, food and dining, and so much more. Just become a subscriber to the AJC. Go to AJC.com slash start for a special offer and unlock hundreds of original articles published daily at AJC.com and on the new AJC mobile app. That's AJC.com slash start. 
Guys, the border security bill died as expected in the Senate yesterday, but it happened a lot faster than some people were expecting. <clears throat> it also leaves a lot of looming questions about the border, aid to Ukraine and Israel, and who gets the blame. Georgia's two U.S. senators both voted to move to debate on the bill. John Ossoff and Raphael Warnock both said that the southern border and the situation there is a threat to national security. And here's something that Raphael Warnock said that really caught my attention. And this is a quote from him. To be clear, this is not the bill I would have drafted. There are immigration provisions contained in this bill that are good and many that give me pause. But today's vote to open a bipartisan debate on this fraught issue is how we civilly deliberate deliberate complicated issues affecting Americans. Well, they did not civilly deliberate that issue. Greg, they didn't debate anything at all. That vote failed on a party line vote. And it was DOA before it even, you know, before people even saw the language of it. It's, it's such a unique situation that even the Republican sponsor of the bill basically said, hey, what do I do? You know, it's, it's already DOA because f- former President Trump had urged Republicans to vote against it to deprive Joe Biden of a win. And of course, there's the political implications that we noted. And of course, there's the real world implications of Ukraine desperately trying to fight off a Russian invasion and running out of military shells and uh, artillery shells running out of um, other, you know, military aid and military goods they need to fight off this invasion. And Israel, in the middle of this Hamas, uh, the war against Hamas in the Gaza Strip, is also desperate for more aid. Bill, if you look in the details of what came up in the Senate, that bill was basically a Republican bill. There's nothing in there that Democrats typically bring to the table on a border bill or on an immigration bill. There was zero talk of um, a path to citizenship. There really were just, there was money for more border secure, border patrol agents, um, more detention beds, shorter asylum uh, uh, processing times, and the right for the president and the obligation for the president to just to entirely close the border if the number of asylees uh, coming into the country reached a certain threshold. Um, But it really felt like Donald Trump declaring this bill dead and telling Republicans just don't vote, do not vote yes on this bill. It felt like that just killed it from the beginning, but it kind of feels like a self-inflicted wound for Republicans who were trying to present themselves as the party that can solve the problem. Yeah, I think you just said it so well. And by the way, uh, you wrote a wonderful column laying a lot of this out in great detail, and I encourage people to go to AJC.com and read how, how you broke all of this down for us. But it's exactly right. There was no provision for DACA um, I, I, people. There, you're right. There was nothing about a path to citizenship. It was all about border security. And um, w- what's terribly troubling about this is, you know, We've often over the years, a lot of us talked about Donald Trump says the quiet things out loud. (laughs) And the raw political nature of the way Republicans responded to this, literally saying we need this issue to be alive, the chaos at the border for the November election is, I think, something that voters are going to keep in the back of their heads for a very long time. You know, it's like... It's like the, the past government shutdowns. Republicans pushed Republic, uh, uh, government shutdowns on a number of occasions, and voters ended up having long memories about that and punished Republicans in congressional races, in, in election, off-year elections, or whatever. And you've got to think that uh, th- those long memories might last in terms of how Republicans responded to this measure now. Yeah, well, thank you for um, mentioning my column. I, that's one of those unfortunate columns I kind of disagreed with myself within 24 hours. <laughs> because I said that the politics were so bad for the president because here was a solution and would it solve the problem? But House Republicans and Senate Republicans sort of out, out, outdid my I, I want, expectations. I, but, but I want to defend you for a Oh, minute. thank you. And here's yeah, why. Yeah, go. Here's why. We've said it on the show before. President Biden neglected to address this issue in the in the in the, the firm uh, way that he could have very early in his administration. He just did not. It wasn't an awareness in his head. I've got to get to this right now. So I mean, there is some responsibility on his part. On the other hand, Cody Hall, one of Governor Kemp's top aides, of course, who we've said great communications consultant. 
I thought his efforts to try to blame <laughs> what was happening on, uh, on, on President Biden rather than the Republicans who refused to support this measure, not one of his... Not one of the moments he could spin with a lot of credibility. And I we heard think. the same thing from Governor Kemp, you know, and, and we've heard the same thing from a lot of Republicans right. saying, hey, it's been two years, the first two years when Democrats controlled the White House, both branches of the legislature, and Congress, um, that they could have done something about it and they didn't. Um, and you're right, you know, for whatever calculations President Biden made, immigration was not at the top of the list. Uh, infrastructure was, climate change was, health care was, other, other issues that they were able to push through were – uh, immigration wasn't. And now Republicans want to make them feel the pain for it, right? And you're, and we're also right in saying that Republicans could have gotten this deal done that was negotiated, and it was DOA, didn't even get to the starting line almost. Well, Cody, even on our air, demand basically demanded executive action from President <laughs> Biden. So now Republicans, not just Cody, um, now Republicans are saying, well, Biden could have done this through executive action all along. Well, guess what? Here are coming some executive actions, so Republicans cannot complain when they were not made a part of whatever solution goes in at the border um, because I do think Biden now will move in with executive action with no other choice and he may come out kind of politically with the upper hand on this issue at the end of the day. So the question, all right, Patricia, here's my question. Um, I heard a pundit on one of the cable channels say something I thought was pretty interesting. I'd be curious what you think. He said, if this had happened during the Clinton administration, there's no question that Bill Clinton, one of the great presidential communicators would have pounded Republicans uh, over and over again making a point about this. And that person said, not quite so sure, and this was a Democrat, not quite so sure that President Biden has the same ability to do that. I wonder about that. I don't think anyone thinks that Joe Biden has Bill Clinton's political skills, but he has other attributes that Bill Clinton lacks. Well, yes, but can he make the point in a firm enough way that it'll get through? Well, well, TBD, we're going to see about that. Now, one one thing I definitely want to get to in this show is a piece that posted Thursday morning from Greg Bluestein about C.J. Pearson. Greg, I am endlessly fascinated by C.J. Pearson, and you did what I wanted somebody to do, which was to go out to Augusta and find out what's going on with him. Patricia, I can't believe I'm saying this, but as strange as it sounds, I've been writing about C.J. Pearson since he was a 13-year-old. <laughs> now, he's only 21. He's only 21. But I don't think I can say that about any other Georgia politician. And I'm no. glad I can't say that about any other Georgia politician. But C.J.'s unique in that when he was just 13 years old, he was living in his grandparents' house in the outskirts of Augusta, and he was already a viral sensation. He had posted a number of uh, tweets and videos that had literally caught fire and, oh, not literally, but got <laughs> caught uh, online <laughs> fire, figuratively caught fire, and got millions of views and all sorts of outsized media attention at the time. And I want to take a deeper look at him all those years ago about the impact that was having on his family's life. Um, there were people trying to take advantage of him. He was already he was he was feeling like he, he was lying on media social media, saying he was blocked by then President Barack Obama. All this other stuff. Well, since then he's become a uh, a more polished twenty uh, one year old now who recently dropped out of University of Alabama. And when Governor Kemp appointed a longtime state representative Barry Fleming to a judicial post. That seat came open in the Georgia House, and CJ was one of the first people to jump in the race. And it's this interesting contest between a social media influencer star, CJ Pearson, who can get on Fox News, who can get a lot of national attention against, uh, well, there's a five-candidate race, but the main Republican in this race is a former Columbia County commissioner named Gary Richardson, very low profile, in his 60s, long time, owns a bunch of car washes in Columbia County, not a very flashy candidate. And with a race like this, it is hard to predict. There's only a few thousand people who are going to vote. Yeah, and let's point out, Election Day is Tuesday because this is a special election. This is not going to be in the June primary. What are his parents like? You know, we, we often say that our parents determine our politics. I remember in the 1960 Nixon-Kennedy uh, race, my parents were all in for Nixon, so so was I. I look back on that now and say, what the heck was I thinking? <laughs> what are his, par are his parents? It's his that grandparents who his are grandparents. really raising him. Are they and, that far to the right, too? Well, it's funny because way back when, I s sat down and talked to his grandmother for a long time, and she did not understand any of this social media stuff, right? I don't blame her. But she, I remember her telling me a story that one time she grounded CJ. And remember, he was just a middle school, middle school student. He was my kid's age. And, um, and she grounded him. And then the next thing you know, like 
someone was calling her up because he had gone viral again because he was posting from his from his bedroom closet, right? And so, and so you know, you can imagine. And I, I don't think her politics lined up with his back then. I have no idea. You know, things have changed the last couple of years. Um, but I, you know, it's the other interesting thing about this this race is. Um, C.J. Pearson was Vernon Jones's campaign manager. Yeah. Is, is 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 says he'll be the most conservative Republican in the caucus. Says one of his first priorities is to go after Fannie Willis. So he's going to be a far right sort of candidate. And that's why Governor Kemp. One of the reasons why Governor Kemp is openly <laughs> competing, uh, contesting his his race. Right? He is. They're spending thousands of dollars to target Republican voters. Uh, and their and his allies filed a residency challenge against C.J. Pearson. Beating up on a 21-year-old yes. kid. Well, young C.J. Pearson <laughs> has gotten some very powerful enemies in the state, not the least of which is because there is a very famous lawsuit, Pearson v. Kemp, that was mm. C.J. Pearson joining Sidney Powell and other Trump allies to overturn the results of the 2020 election. So he got into some serious business against Governor Kemp, and Kemp's uh, team is not interested in having him in the state house uh, coming to work in the Capitol every day. Yeah, giving him that platform, um, you know, with this elected office, but also, of course, looking down the road at a potential run for another office, you know, in a not-so-distant future if you can win this one. Yep, that's exactly right. Well, if you have a question for the show about C.J. Pearson or anything else, you can call Politically (laughs) Georgia call-in hotline anytime. Leave a question, and we'll answer it right here on our Friday Listener Mailbag segment. That number is 404-526-AJCP. That's 404-526-2527. Well, that's all the time we have for today's podcast. You can now hear Politically Georgia live weekday mornings at 10 on 90.1 WABE in Atlanta, or follow Politically Georgia on your favorite podcast app. If you like what you hear, please leave us a review and share Politically Georgia with a friend. Join us again tomorrow for Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Ocean breeze, tropical beach, pina colada. You can buy an air freshener to make your car smell like you're in an oceanside paradise. Or, better yet, you can point your car toward Daytona Beach and come experience the real thing. Visit DaytonaBeach.com to discover all there is to see, do, and enjoy along the world's most famous beach. Daytona Beach, Florida. Beach on. Donald Trump has been indicted in Atlanta. We have so many court dockets to follow, but we haven't really seen anything yet. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution has covered every moment of this historic case. I've been writing about this investigation for two and a half years. Our team is led by reporters Bill Rankin and Tamar Hallerman. Follow our coverage on AJC.com and listen to new in-depth episodes of the award-winning podcast, Breakdown, The Trump Indictment, only from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution.